0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Versaif and Isabel Hardman. Putin has announced a mobilisation of troops and has also threatened nuclear action. James, can you fill us in?
0: So Vladimir Putin is doing two things here. First is partial mobilization that's designed to get more manpower to the front and prevent a kind of full-on collapse of Russian forces. The second part of the strategy is a series of um, uh, of referendums, which I think is fair to say would not meet the Electoral Reform Society's criteria for a free and fair vote, which will then allow him to say that these these the, these currently occupied parts of Ukraine wish to join Russia. And then, as he's menacing uh, uh, videotapes address made clear, if they were to then be attacked, then all options up to a nuclear one would be on the table in terms of defending that that territory and I think this this speech tells you two things one that the war is clearly not going according to plan hence the need for this partial mobilization something that Putin has been wary of because I think they are aware of the fact that you know once you start drafting people people's view of the war could change and secondly the desire to uh to to push the nuclear rhetoric suggests that they ha- they are struggling in terms of conventional ways to strike back against the recent uk ukrainian counter-offensive and paul wood looks at in the magazine this week this becomes the question you know what will vladimir putin do in this situation and what is the best way to try and contain him, uh, you know, and I think it is true that, but this this question is complex because he also takes a kind of slightly Leninist view that you're going to plunge the uh, the banner in until you until you meet bone and, and and resistance, and so I think we are we are looking to see where what how you navigate your way out of a situation, but I think what is quite clear as well is that up until I think about a month or so ago. The argument that Putin had such control of the information environment in Russia that he could essentially, at any point, declare victory and go home, and you know, and you did see this. That, you know, after the the uh, the failed assault on Kiev, he redefined the war aims to the Donbass, and and that you know he appears to have done that w- within Russian opinion, in domestic opinion, re- with relative to success. I think it is now sufficiently clear, even within the limited information that Russians have available to them on state media, that the special military operation in Commerce is not going to plan and so i think that makes things more difficult for putin in terms of what to do i also think you know there will be lots of discussion over the coming weeks about whether whether to offer vladimir putin an off ramp or not at the moment but i think it is worth noting that none of his behavior suggests that he is someone who wants one and i do think that if you basically get into a situation where putin can march into a town declare that you know hold a ridiculous the you know rushed referendum without any kind of international observers or any any of the provisions you would want to ensure the vote was free and fair and then declare when the predictable result comes in that that is now russian territory you are essentially allowing a rewriting of the of the world order in a way which i think will encourage further aggression so you have to balance out all of these factors
1: And Isabel, of course, the conflict in Ukraine is having repercussions across the world when it comes to the energy crisis. What have we been hearing from the new business secretary today?
2: So Jacob Rees-Mogg has set out, uh, not to parliament, it has to be said, um, but in an announcement, which is going to annoy Speaker uh, Lindsay Hoyle even more, he set out Plans to cut business energy bills in half now this is this is different to the domestic energy price cap freeze. This is a cap on um, the wholesale price of uh, gas and electricity, so it 's capping how much they can be charged um, for energy at um, two hundred and eleven pounds per megawatt hour for electricity and seventy five pounds per megawatt hour for gas but as organizations like the federation for small businesses and so on uh, who represent uh, organizations businesses small firms that are particularly worried uh, about what their energy bills are going to look like over the next few months are saying is that that still doesn't give them a huge amount of clarity as to what they're going to expect on their invoice um and so they're now they're saying FSB and others are saying, look, you know, it's now on the energy suppliers to get in touch with these small businesses and to tell them what they have got to uh, expect. But, um, but it's an attempt to uh, put businesses on a similar footing to uh, the domestic, um, uh, domestic customers um, who obviously had their announcement. And it's another sign, I think, um, in, in a sort of political sense of uh, the government trying to get back to hitting the ground running um, and showing that it's actually, um, you know, d- despite the hiatus of the national period of, of mourning, it's, it's still intent upon uh, solving a lot of the worries or at least addressing some of the worries that Liz Truss uh, said she would address quickly as soon as she came into the job. It comes ahead of the fiscal event akin to a budget uh, on Friday, which isn't, Going to get the full amount of scrutiny that a budget would get, but which will include um, a lot more details on this and other measures designed to get the uh, economy moving. and And it, it was really interesting listening um yesterday to to Liz Truss as she gave various uh, broadcast interviews from the United Nations General Assembly meeting in um, New York where she was quite keen to say that she was prepared to be unpopular. That was you know, the, the side effect of taking difficult decisions to get the economy moving. And I think that's going to be uh, the other theme alongside hitting the ground running, uh, which is that this is a government that's going to take difficult decisions and isn't going to expect people to like it uh, early on. But look, parties need to win elections to stay in government. So the gamble that Liz Truss is taking... Is that she is going to get the thanks from voters, uh, whether for their um, their domestic energy bills or for the you know the, the businesses they run or work for? in time as the economy picks up. And
1: James, when it comes to those measures that Liz Truss plans to use to get the growth that she thinks uh, the country needs, but also would secure her re-election um, or even uh, more positive polling than she currently has, do we have a sense yet of how big Friday's mini-budget is going to be? Because there's quite an extraordinary leak today to the Times on stamp duty.
0: Yeah, so it's suggesting that there will be changes to stamp duty. Now, stamp duty is, I think, it, 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 it is a poorly designed tax And it's a tax that makes people less inclined to move house, which is obviously not good for labour mobility and the like. So I think changing stamp duty is sensible. I also think it is quite clear that the top rate of stamp duty is, is one of those things that George Osborne kept raising stamp duty and getting more and more money back. And then obviously, I think the final tranche of increase was just too much. And I think it is making, it is gumming up the London housing market a bit. Now, the problem of doing stamp duty, though, is you've got to do something else as well, I think, to boost housing supplies. So I think that that's where that question comes in. Now, talking of leaks, there's another interesting leak to the Financial Times about the new way of doing levelling up via these investment zones, which reads to me like an attempt to do kind of planning reform on a kind of local piecemeal basis. I think mean, the question, though, is... Twofold really. One is can planning reform on a piecemeal effect really have a dramatic liberalising effect as opposed to doing it on an on an England wide basis? And then I mean the second thing is time. I, I, Isabel mentioned this, you know. I mean, one of the crucial things about uh, Liz Ross and Quasi thing that we can sometimes forget is they come in after twelve years of Tory government and they have two years going to the next election and and as you said, Labour are currently ahead in the polls by a relatively not spectacular but relatively comfortable margin and have been for, for quite some time this is not a new thing and so i think the question becomes is this which is if you are trying to make uh, supply side reforms to economy to get the economy to grow faster first of all those supply side reforms take time and even though they require legislation are going to take particular time because they have to get through parliament remember the government has no majority in the house of lords and the other, que- the other point is I think a lot of councils when it comes to these investment zones or businesses are going to think, well, do I really want to do this or make a decision on this when I'm not sure that this policy is still going to be in place post 2024? And I think that is one of the things that makes it so much more difficult because because they really do, because the Tories have been in power for 12 years, I think it will be really quite hard for them to go to the country in the next section and say, well, just give us a little bit more time and you'll see the fruits of our policy. I mean, they really will have had to Start delivering this growth, and this growth is really ambitious. You know, the economy has grown at about one percent a year since the crash, right? And they are talking about going to a trend growth rate of two and a half percent, you know, they, they, on, on average one percent a year. And so I think the question here is, can this growth be delivered quick enough? that voters are like, oh yeah, I see this, and you don't just get, uh, as you were writing about last night in Coffee House case, you don't just get the unpopularity without people saying, oh yeah, they took some tough decisions that I didn't much like, but the economy is now growing because of them. I mean. They, I think there is a timing question here, which is almost the biggest enemy that they face.
1: Because it's interesting on that point, James, because the indication from everyone around this trust and quasi-quartung is that uh, the Prime Minister would want to wait till 2024 for an election. But then you speak to um, MPs looking at, um, I think, some of the appointments, the level of borrowing there could be, uh, that we'll start to see you know, more of, but some of which has been pre-announced. And they do wonder to really, you could hold that together all the way to 2024.
0: Well, look, I think if you were an alien visiting from outer space with, with a knowledge of how governments tend to fiscally loosen before elections you would think that the election was going to be in 2023 I, I don't mean to be presumptive but I don't think any of us think the election is going to be in 2023 I mean there I think mean, there are two reasons for that firstly I think Theresa May showed that if you are a new prime minister you either want to go straight away in your honeymoon something that isn't really an option for Liz Truss given all the challenges that are coming up this autumn or and winter. the past. <laughs> yeah indeed or you want to go you know, at the end of your term, essentially, and ask for a renewal of your contract. Uh, Theresa May showed, I think, the dangers of falling between two stools there. And the second one, I think, is a very human thing. If you've spent your whole political life trying to, to become prime minister and you go in 2023, you risk losing this dream job that you have worked so hard for after having had barely any time to do it and being one of going down as one of the shortest serving prime ministers in history. So for all those reasons, and also given that, Everyone, despite what the government, the huge amounts of money the government is going to spend on energy bills and like, people are basically going to face a real terms pay cut this year because of where inflation is. So I think for all for those three reasons, I think, you know, autumn 2024, or if things are going really well, May 2024, are the most likely dates for the next election.
1: And Isabel, we've had some appointments um overnight when it comes to the junior ministerial reshuffle which was put on pause during the morning period are we getting a flavor i mean i suppose the main cabinet um uh, formation was was very much ruling loyalists
2: is there much more of a spread in the junior ranks so i think these were Generally, quite minor appointments. There were um, uh, quite a lot of changes in the Lords. Some long standing um, ministers and whips have, have gone and been replaced in the Lords. Um, in terms of the Commons, one of the interesting appointments is Claire Cotino, who um, was PPS, a sort of junior ministerial aide uh, to Rishi Sunak, which I suppose. Could be used as evidence that Liz Truss is reaching out across the the gaping chasm in the the gaping chasm in the party. I'm not entirely sure this will bridge um, the gap, <laughs> given this is again a, a very junior ministerial role for um, Coutinho. But um, someone from Rishi Sunak's camp has been brought uh, into the fold, and um, and uh, you know that's. Um, that's worth remarking on. I guess also that, you know, this this reshuffle was planned out at its highest levels um, long before Liz Truss became Prime Minister, but has only just got going again at the junior uh, ministerial rankings uh, because of the death of the Queen. And so um, every appointment has to be signed off by Buckingham Palace before it is announced, uh, which is why we've only just started to receive announcements saying the King has been pleased to appoint and... Um, and so on. So we'll then start to move on to um, even more junior uh, jobs, uh, PPSs, which is what Claire Catino was uh, before she was moved up. And that's going to be quite interesting, because if you talk to uh, MPs in the 2019 intake in particular, they're keeping a really close eye on that, not just because they want jobs, but because they are anxious about who else is going to get a job, whether it's going to be um, people who are Have been uh, big rebels, um, but are close to Liz Truss. There was quite a lot of disquiet when Deanna Davidson uh, got a ministerial job uh, because uh, some of her colleagues have been angry about the prospect of her being a PPS because she'd been such a rebel. So again, you know, this always happens around reshuffles that you have a group of disgruntled MPs who think that one of their colleagues doesn't deserve a job for this, that and the other reason. But it's it's worth remarking on again, because even though Liz Truss does have a big majority, uh, as we learned from Boris Johnson's uh, tenure, it's actually quite hollow. And uh, there's little evidence yet uh, that she's managed to uh, strengthen it.
1: Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.